You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. Because here it's just dirty and violent and troubling as we discuss Songs of Red and Gray, the sixth studio album by Suzanne Vega. It was produced by Rupert Hines and released on September 25th, 2001 on AM Records, her last for the label. My guest today, he'd come to my house and dance in the hall, an awkward ballet, but I didn't care at all because he's a scientist, a writer, and a dear, dear friend, Derek Victor. Welcome back to the show, Derek. How you doing? I am good. Thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure, always fun. How have you been in these uh, covid times? Not too bad. I'm a bit of a homebody, so for the most part, I was I was okay, but I really missed stand-up and the stuff around that. So, you know, not having an open mic or having a, my weekly writer's meeting along with just the, you know, getting on stage and doing stuff. So that was the one thing that I really missed about the whole thing. Consider doing any online shows? No, no. We talked a little bit about it, but uh, I still teach or maybe taught at this point, the semester's over, who knows if I'll be back, but I uh, teach at a private university and do English conversation lessons. And I ended up doing them through Teams. Some of the things I, you know, I, I was doing a lesson that I got from you 16 years ago <laughs> on how to give a presentation. And one that I've obviously made multiple changes through the years to, to better suit what I wanted from the students and whatnot. But I've told jokes throughout that whole thing, uh, just because it's an easy lesson to slip some humor into. And everybody was on silent, obviously, because I was teaching. And I would tell a joke that I know makes students laugh at least a little bit. And I got no reaction. It was the most horrifying thing ever. (laughs) And the thought of doing that to an audience who, you know, with a different power dynamic, you know, as a teacher, students are more likely are much more likely to laugh at you, even if they don't think the joke is funny because of the power imbalance. Right. So, but when you're (laughs) doing stand-up comedy, I mean, there's, there's, there's science behind this, you know, doing that, the thought of, No, I just couldn't think of any way that I could make that work for me. I'm sure other people did it and did it successfully, but no, that wasn't something that... uh, Not for you. No. Not for you. So tell me, Derek, how did this album enter your life? Songs of Red and Gray is the first album that I bought in the period after 9-11. I had lost family in the 9-11 attack. And even though I wasn't living in the United States or um, at the time I was living in Poland, it still felt very present. And I ended up taking a few weeks off work and I wasn't really engaging with pop culture or media or the world beyond that news for a while. And when I kind of came back to myself and when I kind of started reconnecting with the world it was i think early october and i remember that i was out actively looking for something to take me out of the moment take me out of that feeling i had actually lost two cousins and a friend and was just needing something that would that would pull me out of that feeling of loss and it was one of those things that I had actually, I had listened to Suzanne Vega's first two albums, I want to say, 
and really loved them. I loved her voice. I loved her kind of engagement with the topics that she was taking on, some of which resonated very strongly with me. And I walked into a music store in Wrocław called Empik, and there was the new album. And it was just, it was one of the new releases. It was right as you came into the store, right in front of the door at my eye level. And I just thought, oh, a new album. And this is someone who I had frequently kind of connected with because of that resonance. And, and it just reading the the list of songs in the back and looking at the cover, it just seemed that this was the right album. And as it turned out, it was. It was the album I needed to be listening to at that time. So I really kind of connected with it in that moment. I think it was really fitting that it was the first album that I bought after that few weeks of trying to wrap my head around what had happened, because it helped. And it's odd, because I don't have any memories of this album associated with that time specifically. And I didn't realize how close that release date was until I was putting everything together for the notes for the show. I must have been somewhere around that same time because now I I knew of Suzanne Vega. So I had heard Luca like everybody did back in whenever, when did that come out? 87, I think. Something like that. That was just one of those singles you couldn't get away from, even though I didn't listen to any of that kind of stuff. I was listening to, you know, Metallica and Slayer at the time. So I knew Luca, but it didn't, it wasn't something that I actively sought out and it wasn't anything that I went back to listen to later. And then when I was at uh, university, I was working at my college radio station and she had released an album called 99.9 Fahrenheit Degrees, which was very different from the first couple of records that she had put out. So she uh, had a different producer who I can't remember if she had already married him. So this is when I want to say it was Mitch Froome, who was a bit more of an experimental kind of person. And so he produced a couple of her records and that one was a lot more with like electronic and and noises and it wasn't folk, you know? So I think she still had that folk approach from the songwriting, but the musicianship behind it was very, very different than what she had done before. And I liked uh, a handful of songs on that. So Blood Makes Noise, which I think was the single, was a great tune. And it's something that I, I liked quite a bit in 92, but just didn't really listen to, I have it. And I hadn't, I've never, I hadn't really listened to it until a few people saw that I was suggesting this record and wanted to do that one. Uh, so I went back and listened to it and, and I like it well enough, but not as much as I like this one. And then I had just kind of, you know, didn't think much about her. And then there was a, what was it? Uh, God, now I can't remember the name. It was one of these music sites where they um, tried to predict what you would like. They had like the algorithms. So before Spotify, there was this other one that I can't remember the name of. So one of the first ones and you went through and, you know, they played different like guitar parts and you said which one you liked better and it tried to, and then you could set up little playstations for certain types of music. And I probably had one set up for Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits. And there was a song by uh, Suzanne Vega on that, which I can't remember now, but I really liked. And I want to say it was off of Nine Objects of Desire. And of course there was, you know, Tom's Diner, which was super catchy, the DNA remix of that. Right. So, you know, so she was just somebody I, I was kind of new in the periphery. And then I've talked about a lot, a lot of the albums that I picked for this show initially, a lot of them came out in between 2000 and 2003. 
this just happened to be, so she was somebody that I knew, I think I must have read a good review or just came out. And I don't know if I did the same thing. I don't know if I bought this because it, this was, you know, this post 9-11 and I needed something that wasn't going to be, you know, noisy or jarring. I needed something that was going to be a little more comforting. And I knew this was billed as kind of a, a return to what she was doing before because not only was Mitch Froome no longer her producers because he was no longer her husband. So this is the in the grand tradition of breakup records. Uh, so this was all put out after she had divorced. Um, she and her husband had gotten a divorce, and you can hear a lot of that throughout this record. And so it's you know like Beck's Sea Change or what was it Dylan's Blood on the Tracks? You know, there's a, a million albums out there that are the, the result of a of a spectacular breakup, and this right. happens to be one of them. You know, I can see why people who got into her through her more experimental phase may not like this one, and I'm sure people who like the early stuff maybe like this one as well, but. I like a bunch of her stuff. This is the only one by her that I love. And it's just a lot of what I was listening to at that time just hit me at the right place at the right time, the right way. And this was one of those albums. Where were you living at the time? Were you? I was living in Tampa. Okay. So Christian and I were living together in the South Howard area of Tampa and we were working together. Yeah, like I said, I don't have a specific memory of this with uh, with 9-11 because I didn't even realize how close that was until basically... Uh, two days ago when I was putting something together. I was like, oh, wow, it was two weeks later. And I'm, I'm sure that factored into why I picked it up, but I just don't, I don't have any memory of that. Yeah, looking for something quieter. <laughs> yeah. And and I was also interested because it was billed as this return and, uh, and the, you know, again, like the breakup record. So I was curious as to uh, how it would go and, and I love it. So let's go ahead and jump into the track by track. So we'll be taking a look at side one, song one, Penitent. The mother and the matador A mystic each were here before like me To stare you down You appear without a face Disappear but leave your trace I feel your unseen frown Now what would you have me do? I ask you You know, this album doesn't start off with a bang for me. Like I like this tune, but this is one like there's a small handful of tracks on this album that come very close to being adult contemporary in the most boring way possible. Or like they're just not my <laughs> not my style of music. I think like if the if the string section on this because there's a, there's a nice little string section. I think if that's a, a little bit more syrupy or a little bit more dramatic or put a little too much too big in the mix, then this song goes from being an interesting song to just being, ugh, I don't know. So uh, I like this song and there's certain things that I think are pretty interesting on here. Like her, her repeated use of the word obey, I find uh, to be pretty interesting because, you know, that was something that used to be in wedding vows and right. I think it, was, it was taken out. I don't remember exactly when I'm sure, you know, maybe some people still say it, but it's no longer a part of, let's say, the standard set of wedding vows in, in America anymore. And when she talks about one of my favorite lines in there is, you know, like, how low does one's heart go? When she was talking about looking for him and like, was it Heathered Moor, Desert, something in the ocean floor? So there's a, uh, you know, she's, she's working through a lot on this record. And I noticed that a lot of her, her lyrics are, are very poetic. And there's certain things that she seems to go back to quite a few times on this record. Some of these things we see in this first song. It's a good one. It's not a great one, though. They're, the great one she, she saves for a little bit later. But 
What do you think about this one? I actually, I mean, I think it is a great one, but I think that's the, the, the amazing thing when it comes to music is that we all connect with very different things and we hear very different things, particularly when you're dealing with artists like Suzanne Vega, like Tori Amos, Annie DeFranco, Bjork, who who leave a lot of space within the lyrics for you to find yourself and within the music for you to find yourself. I mean, not just them, hundreds of artists do that, but those are the ones that really come to mind, partly probably because that religious element and relationship element and conflicts around those are kind of a thing you see with Tori, with Anita Franco, with Suzanne Vega. So it really, I have that association of the space that those artists create. I'm a sucker for an opening like this, where there's that little, almost breathy, light music, and then and then the music kicks in on top of it. It feels like the start of a concert to me. It feels like there's that little, almost you don't hear it almost inaudible music coming in that starts to get people's attention to the stage, the people who are more aware are looking. And then the guitar comes in and the curtain comes up and there she is on stage. So for me, it has that like kicking off a show aspect to it. And I find it quite a big opening actually, in contrast to, to how you feel about it. But it's also quite a painful song. I totally pick up on what you're saying about the obey kind of association with marriage. And obviously, I didn't know this was a breakup record until much later. So I was reading my own things into it. Of course, knowing it's a breakup record, you can kind of pick up on the, the loss of love and the, the conflicts around that and the, the mocking of the wedding vows. But you can also... I could pick up it, an element of it being someone looking for faith that they have lost, someone looking for a role that they have lost, a position that they've lost, and, and trying to define themselves again within that. And there's that, what would you have me do line, which there's almost a bit of like, what do you expect of me? How, who am I within this? situation who do i get to be and i found that that sense of loss in the song i think was at the time that i first heard it certainly transported me into that well where are any of us right now because 2001 second half of 2001 it felt so like are we going into a world war you know is this the our war to end all wars about to kick off and it was very that energy of not knowing where we were that I picked up from that song. So I find it very painful and very powerful. It's it's an interesting contrast to what you were saying. This is a song that just the charms lost on me after a while. I like this song a lot better when I was first listening to the record. Mm. And this is a record that I, I have returned to quite a few times. So it's not one that has stayed back in 2001, mainly because there's a couple of songs we'll talk about later that I adore and I, I listen to quite a bit. And so this is one I believe that I liked a lot more when I first heard it. It did get me into the album. It's a good introduction, but it's just one that I, I hear the flaws of it now. 
uh, or my, let's say, perceived flaws of it. I think that the song is constructed fine. And that, you know, what would you have me do as a one I forgot to write down because I like how ambiguous that line can be because it's, you know, is, is she accusing? Is she questioning? Is she complicit? You know, there's a lot of different mm. ways you could, you could read that line. You know, it's like, what would you have me do? Because I'll do it. You know, it could be one of those. <laughs> so, uh, I think it's a, it's a fascinating line. And I love those kind of lines where they really open to interpretation and you don't get an answer through the rest of the song. So let's go ahead and move on to track two, Widow's Walk. Consider me a widow, boys, and I will tell you why. What do you think about this one? This is, for me, is a song of empowerment through loss. There's there's something about the widow's walk. The title makes you think of one of those, you know, walks through a forest in England somewhere that has a name that's associated with a story that's told to you by someone wearing a Renfair costume. <laughs> but the song itself, it's not. It's not walk as in avenue, it's walk as in stride, as in strut, as in I have the walk and I'm going to live in it. I'm going to revel in it. I'm going to be this person. So I found it quite empowering. It's a strong continuation of the themes of loss and now finding power in what is gone and saying, okay, something is gone but i've survived and i'm i'm going on with it so it continues that feeling of power for me this is an album where i sometimes struggle to find the whole story there's albums where you can kind of see a character going on a journey from first to last song there's albums where you see a lot of connections that thread through every single song or through one side this is an album where I sometimes struggle with finding the story because it gets sort of interrupted. But these two songs are very much a story for me and they go together and I tend to listen to them. You know, if I'm, I I wouldn't listen to these songs separately because they just sort of belong together. And I like how it's a little bit cheeky where, you know, she's like, Oh, it's, it's not the man. It was the marriage that's drowned. But I love the line. It's like, you know, like, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it here. It's like, you know, gather around, boys, and let me tell you why. Mm-hmm. And there's something, there's something about the way she sings that line that really makes this song for me. Because this is another one that goes a little too close to, it's like, this is kind of the, it's like Bonnie Raitt or Shania Twain kind oh. of, <laughs> it, it, but it doesn't go there. But it sounds like it's going to, like that guitar opening has that, this is going to be my bluesy, blustery, country-ish number for you. <laughs> I mean, so we can set those boys on their butts, you know, and it's like one of those, and it, that's how it feels at first. And I think as lyrically, it almost flirts with that, but then it pulls back. And even though the choruses are really bright and shiny, it just doesn't go all the way, it, all the way into where I don't want it to go. I mean, so, and I, and I like it. And there's like, again, the, the strings I think are really tasteful on this and it has that sense of movement. And this is where 
listening to it this time around, I noticed how much water imagery is in this record. There's probably a good four or five songs that somehow reference water and another two that talk about things that carry water or avoid water. And this is just one of those where it's, again, there could have been a million different ways that this marriage was ended, but she calls it that it drowned. And I thought that was pretty fascinating, especially after the the water imagery that we get from uh, Penitent. Hmm. I didn't pick up on that, but I can see it. Something I hadn't noticed before, and it's just been this time around. I figured if I was going to talk to you, I, I better do a better job of looking at the lyrics. So uh, I, I looked a little closer this time around than I have in the past when we've talked. So uh, I'm, I was ready to bring it just a little bit. And you did. <laughs> so we're going to go on to track three, I'll Never Be Your Maggie May. I'll never be your Maggie Mae The one you loved and left behind The face you see in light of day Then you cast away That isn't me and that bed you'll find I love songs that reference other songs or songs about albums I've talked about on a previous podcast. I love that she just assumes you know who this character is, that you know the the song from Rod Stewart, and you know that it's about, uh, you know, Rod Stewart's song is about when, you know, he was a 16-year-old boy or something and bedded an older woman and just took off in the morning kind of thing. And then this is her reaction to that, where she's the older woman and she is with a younger man and ages aren't really mentioned here or anything, but she just feels like Oh, when, when he sees me in the morning, he's going to see the flaws. And so I'm going to be gone. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm leaving. When you talked about, you know, the empowerment of Widow's Walk, this, you know, I won't, I'm not going to play the game of mm. where, you know, I'm going to, I'll bring up that young boy. I'll make him a man and then he can leave me, but that's okay. Because she's like, no, it's not okay. I'm out of here, you know? And I, I enjoy that part of it. Just the way she sings it. And I see if I wrote this down right. Uh, where she says like, and, and you'll forgive me or you will not. I love just the way she sings that towards the end of the song. Going back that, I, I love that it references another song that she trusts that you know your pop culture enough to know what she's talking about. Doesn't have to really spell it out for you. And how she refuses to go down that path talking about the, how this is a divorce record. Men, you know, She said, this has nothing to do with her husband. This has nothing to do with her ex-husband, I should say. It doesn't have anything. I don't think it's even a, a true story. It's just, it's a song that she wrote, but I can see coming out of that, coming out of a relationship and the hurt and the pain and the seeking for other, other things and other people, how even if this didn't happen in any way, I could see this is clearly where somebody who has like a poetic mind, this is a, a, way, a place you would go. This is a, a really, really great song. What do you think about it? I have to agree. It's, it's a fantastic song. And from the title through the music to the lyrics, every element of it kind of stands up. And it's a, again, it's about that. As you say, it's a, the divorce record. And this is about how strong it is to walk away, the strength that it takes to walk away, the strength in walking away. It's about finding identity outside of a relationship. And it stands up really well on its own, as well as being part of the divorce album. I really like the lines, I'd rather take myself away and rather paint myself a face. That idea of, I'd rather redefine myself as someone who is not your other half 
who's not connected to you, who's not the Aunt Suzanne kind of element of of someone's relationship. But there's also, and you know, I I've, I've talked with you before about how sometimes a line resonates because of its queerness. There's also an element of if you don't know the Maggie May kind of thing, if you don't know that reference and you just, I'll never be what you want me to be. If you take that from it, then I'd rather take myself away, rather paint myself a face. It takes on another layer of meaning if you're open to that meaning. And and I think I got all of that from the song as well. Just that idea of finding an identity outside of a parental relationship or a sibling relationship or a friendship or indeed a marriage. So I'm always here for songs that are about finding your own identity. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, this is a really good example of one. I think those first three songs, they continue that kind of strength. And I I remember in, in 2001 just being very pulled into this album and listening to it almost every day because those first three songs carry me in. Yeah, really positive memories. Like you're saying that even if you don't know Maggie Mae, you don't know that song, I think you can still understand what she's trying to get across with this song. And I think if you know the song, then it obviously makes it just a little bit deeper. There's a little bit of hope in this one. And there's also a little bit of, I've lost all my fucks to give. You know, I don't really care as much about that. And it's more about maintaining your own sense of self and own sense of pride while still kind of enjoying yourself along the way that you're not going to avoid something because it may be painful at the end because you've already been through something even more painful. Mm, Yeah. I like that interpretation. Well, thank you. Let's go ahead and move on to track four. It makes me wonder. Um, I was not predisposed to like this one. Overtly religious imagery can sometimes turn me off of a song. I mean, Leonard Cohen, Old Testament, I'm here for it. Tori and Sinead O'Connor rejecting it, I'm here for it. But there was something about this song the first time I heard it where I actually just skipped it. The Virgin Mary on the chain, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not. I'm not in the mood. (laughs) Next track. And so sometimes I kind of forget this song as part of the whole. It's quite raunchy. Like that Virgin Mary on the chain has hit me in the mouth again as we explore the carnal score of sacred and profane. I mean, I'm seeing someone who's wearing a pendant with the Virgin Mary, and that's the only thing they're wearing as they are above her and and the chain is kind of swinging and hitting her in the face as they engage in sex. So it's quite raunchy, but then it goes into, you know, the second verse and it's kind of like, no, don't want to be thinking about raunchy with those images. Stop it. Um, So 
I have very mixed feelings about this song. It's I maybe just don't understand where she was coming from with it. Musically, I like it, but lyrically, there's something. I think there's always going to be something repellent about it for me. And I'm glad I'm not the only one who got confused because that was my first thought. The same thing with you, just you know, that it's like a dude wearing a necklace or a girl wearing a necklace and nothing else. And that's what's hitting her in the face. But then it follows up with like breastfeeding stuff. Yeah. And so that I'm like, did I misunderstand what she meant the first time? Does she, are, are we both, did we both go to the dirty place just because we're dirty people? Is that what, <laughs> is that what this is about? And then it wasn't about that at all because, Hey, she's breastfeeding here in the second chorus. You fucking pervert, you know? <laughs> so I don't know. And I, I have a lot of the exact same issues with the song that you do. Uh, I like this is where we see the color imagery come out and, and there's quite a bit of that as well in the record. And so, you know, there's the uh, the white oblivion and the cold blue flame. This reminds me just a little bit of the earlier stuff that she did. And I'm not sure why. It's something about the, the phrasing that she uses, especially with that line about the, the cold blue flame. That reminds me of uh, stuff from before 99.9 Fahrenheit degrees. Because I've heard those records. I just never got into them. So it just something, something about that draws me back to that. And I wanted to go back and listen to see if I could find where it placed, but I ended up doing another podcast last night and I had to <laughs> scrap extra listening to get prepared for that one because it was sort of a last minute thing. So uh, I didn't get to do, I didn't get to go back and see exactly what it drew me to that. Cause yeah, this is one, like those first three, I think he said are, are a bit of a set and then the next two coming or something. And then this one just sort of, it's just sort of there. And with the, the lyrical confusion, I, I've also kind of overlooked this one as well. Yeah. It's interesting you've been talking about the albums from before 99.9 Fahrenheit. I definitely, this album fits with the early albums very clearly in like themes that draw through them in, in imagery that draws through them. I would, I definitely see that. I know a lot of music reviewers like to find these returns to form or returns to theme or kind of things that I'm not going to go that far because it's obviously of its time and of its moment in her life and in her musical journey and she wasn't just reaching back to something from before but I think in maybe rediscovering her identity outside of that relationship some images that she had earlier have now matured and are coming back into play ones that she hadn't played with in a while, because they are different. I don't see Suzanne Vega of the light, late 1980s doing this song. There's just something about the imagery in it that doesn't seem to be from that time. I don't know those albums well enough to say there was just something about the vocal, the way she sang Cold Blue Flame that reminded me of something from before. Like I don't, mm. I don't hear a lot of that in this album, so I don't think... I think it's she got rid of a lot of the experimental flourishes that she was playing around with for a little while. And that's the only way it's like a return to, to what she was doing before, because this is more of a straight up folk rock kind of record. And so there's just something about that pulled me back to that place. That doesn't happen very often. There's a couple of songs here that remind me a little bit of the, the, the more experimental era, but without the experimental part of it, if that makes any sense. There's a few things that just sonically remind me, and I'll bring this up when we get there. So let's go ahead and move on to track five, Soap and Water. Daddy's a dark riddle. Mama's a head full of bees. You are my little kite. 
water imagery for you there. This is my favorite song on the record. I fucking love this song so much. This is the song that pulls me back every time. This is when I listen to those, let's say, first two that sometimes border on a song I may not like, even though it doesn't quite get there. This song is what always pulls me back to this record. I love the song so much. And the, uh, the Daddy's a Dark Riddle, Mama's a Handful of Thorns. And then later on, she repeats it with the, you know, Daddy's a Dark Riddle. So that's exactly the same. But this time, Mama's a Head Full of Bees. And I like how, because she's Mama, so she knows what she is. And so she's two different things. But because Daddy's a Dark Riddle, that's what he remains. And I love that. And then, you know, you are my little kite for, you know, it's like, I'm always going to hold on to you no matter where, you know, and just the imagery of her scrubbing, cleaning, and then trying to take off her wedding band. Oh, I love this song so much. I mean, and it's a dark song. It's a depressing song. It's the, you know, this is the first time you you see some of the, the casualties of the divorce in the child. There's a connection to this that I feel pretty strongly. I mean, I'm a child of the divorce, but also I'm somebody who was not always been very good with my own emotions. And so the thought of somebody calling me a dark riddle probably has happened. <laughs> uh, and if not in those exact words, words that are very close to that. And I can, I can see myself as the bad guy in this song a little too easily. And just the, the music itself is, this is the kind of folk that I like, where it's that it's, it's dark and it's driving, but it's, it still has a, a really great melody to it. And so much about what I love about this record really comes down to this song. What do you think about this one? I love it too. And it's probably my favorite one as well. There's two lines in particular which I remember jumping out to me the first time I heard it, and they keep jumping out to me because of that. Take the day from my hand and wash the year from my life. And that idea of erasing or cleaning or removing these memories that are challenging us so much, or if we can't remove them completely, at least purify them to the point that they are sanitized and can be tolerated. I mean, particularly that wash the year from my life. It, it really comes across very strongly, kind of cleaning and fixing and, and repairing things that have been damaged with the time when I heard it that was strongly resonant, but also the... Um, since then, it, it keeps coming back to me, that idea of what a wish fulfillment it would be to be able to do that, to be able to clean up a memory, to be able to sanitize something so it became just some words in a book that would no longer hurt and so on. It's really powerful and it has that sense of moving on, but it has that sense of being trapped in memory where Widow's Walk had that strut and that kind of, yeah, this is who I am. This is my identity. This has a bit more of a, of not being able to, to get past it. And it creates an in, interesting kind of conflict. And maybe part of the struggle to find a story on the album is that the story's not told in a nice, neat order from the painful moment through to the clarity or from the joy through to the painful movement or moment or something like that. It's just, it's the mess of 
going from I'm fine to out damn spot, <laughs> you know, from power to to uh, trying to scrub your memories. And I think that's a, an interesting thing that keeps you guessing as well. Where am I going next with this? Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the fact that it was, uh, you know, a year that she wants. So it's obviously she doesn't want to get rid of everything, but it's whatever's happened in that last year. And, and that's what she wants to get rid of. And I think that's also, I think, pretty telling and how the line is like, you know, scrub it to a vinegar shine mm. somehow always. That's one that pulls me back. Uh, when, you know, it's like they take, take the salt from my hands and there's just so many just fantastic little lines. And you said, it's, it's not, it's not a neat story. It's not an A to B kind of thing. And it's, it, I think it really reflects the, the chaos that would be as a result of, uh, of a marriage that's dissolved. And I think that reflects this in this album. Yeah. Also soap and water, super 2020. Very on point as a title. <laughs> that's that's why we're doing it this year. I think it yeah. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to track six, the title track, Songs in Red and Gray. Broken and frayed, well, it's 19 years late for repairs. The gray pewter vase held the deep red rose. One piece of coral shone white. By the brass candlestick near your red velvet coat Is everything I can recall of one night What do you think? I mean, again, it's, it's a beautifully haunting song about memory. And this is one of the ones that will stick with you. It doesn't feel as neat and and tidy as fitting into the divorce record narrative. There's something of a a stepmother vibe to it, and I I don't know if there was that kind of child from a previous relationship. I've 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 never actually looked into the Vega from relationship, but the idea of the reproach on your daughter's face and her mother lives within her. That there's something of a stepmother kind of story around that for me. But then there are all of these images and memories of places like where objects within a house were at a particular time and that disjointedness of, for example, remembering, you know, where someone's coat was without remembering the details of the rest of the room because we don't get all of the details the colors are really, really strong. And that red and gray, there's something very 1990s about that color combination. There's something very like, it's my first adult home and I'm decorating and these are the colors I'm going for. And that red and gray bleeds into the early 2000s, but it's going to get replaced by some Ikea blandness. But right then, that that was very of the moment, but fading already. And everything about this song feels like it's something fading. And it really kind of haunts me. It's I have a strange thing where I almost feel like I need the album to flip there. I need a pause after this song to think, because it just 
there's so many questions in it that I, I feel like I need time to think about. Yeah. Haunted. Yeah. And this is my second favorite song. So this, you know, five and six are what just pull me back into this album. I, I love the song so much. And this, like you said, continues with the, the color imagery. I feel like my 11th grade English teacher would love this record just because he was all about, you know, the color imagery and the number imagery and the Christ imagery. And, you know, he was, he was a great guy and a great teacher, but he ruined a couple of books for me. And so maybe I don't want to talk about him with this record because I still love it. But um, yeah, what I, I love is that she doesn't remember any of the emotion and she doesn't remember any of the physicality of her lover. I, this sounds to me like she's having an affair with a married man. And I don't know if this is a memory from before she was married. I don't know if this is something that happened during her marriage and that's part of what ended her marriage, or this is how her marriage began. And I don't really know. Cause again, I don't, and, you know, I don't know how much is fiction. I don't, you know, I don't know how much is just plain old songwriting and how much is, is real life. And I know nothing about their marriage other than that they worked together, they were married and then they divorced and don't work together. That's pretty much what I know about their marriage, you know? Right. But this song, like you said, is haunting, I think is the best word. And what she remembers are just the objects. And that's so cold. And even the colors, like the red and gray. Now, red can obviously be fiery and passionate, but it doesn't feel that way because it's the red rose, but inside of a gray vase. Mm. And the red is like a velvet jacket. Like who has a velvet jacket? You know, <laughs> what's, in what is 2001. Going right. What's going on with that? And this is obviously from a long time earlier, but uh, still that just feels very, did she have this affair in 1956? Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know what's happening. And just, but then that she kind of feels like one of a number or she mentioned something about how many other, like her darkened the door. Uh, which makes me feel like this was uh, an affair as opposed to what led to her being with her husband. But that's just my interpretation of the women that she feels followed her or were there before her. Yeah, so just musically and lyrically, so much to love about this song. So we'll go on to track seven, Last Year's Troubles. Last year's troubles are so old-fashioned The robber on the highway, the pirate on the seas Maybe it's the clothing that's so entertaining The earrings and the swashbuckling blouses that please This one's just peppy. I wasn't sure because I didn't look to see if this had a vinyl release and where they would have split it. And I decided to keep this as the last song on side one. And it's this peppy song about how Eh, troubles are always the same. We may try to look at things with nostalgia and feel like, I don't know, that their suffering was better or, you know, she's like more picturesque is, is the word she uses. This song has just like a slight crash test dummies feel to it musically. Now, obviously not with the super deep male vocals, but just something about the kind of lilting guitar that feels like it could be Irish or, or something like that, English or something that just sounds vaguely foreign to American ears without actually being. So it's not like a lute or anything, but it has that sort of Ren Faire feel in, in the background. Mm. That always reminds me a little bit of uh, the first Crash Test Dummies record because they would they would do things like that. And I don't remember if there's violin in this or not. I like how it feels like she's processing in this one where it's like, all right, I know that right now I'm hurting, 
and people before me have hurt as well. They're going to hurt later. We're all in a line. If you sum it all up, all of our troubles are the same. They may they may look prettier because they had funny dresses back then or something, opposed to the IKEA furniture pain we have now. I don't know, but that's uh, ultimately this is her way of dealing with it, and it goes back to that kind of peppiness like we got in. Um, like with Widow's Walk, where it has more of that. I know what's going on, and I'm going to just keep a spring in my step, uh, even though I'm hurting. What do you think? Peppy is probably the last word that would have come to mind for this song. Um, really? Yeah, I love the energy of this song. I actually think it's fantastic because she sounds like she's sneering. I actually get like a bitterness and cynicism from this song that I really enjoy because it fits with this weird, chaotic, all over the place emotional journey that has, you know, gone from pain to empowerment to raunchiness to, you know, wherever it was going with the red rose and the gray vase. And now suddenly there's this sneer. And to me, it almost felt like her response to everyone who told her that time heals all wounds. <laughs> and her response to... <laughs> I never thought of that. That's exactly right. It's really, for me, there's just a... Yeah, we look at the past and we romanticize the past and we make it seem you know, all of these Dickensian Victorian images and so on. I get that. I get where you're coming from with the crash test dummies comparison. But for me, more than anything, I just get this kind of cynical sneer. And I can just imagine someone who's freshly divorced and someone says, there's, you know, you'll you'll look back on this and you'll laugh. And she's like, oh, go on. <laughs> so that's what I, I get from it. And I think the there's something kind of over the top when she goes into that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's something quite over the top about it. And I think the only thing that you need that level of being over the top is when you're being cynical, when you're when you're sneering at someone. And it's kind of like, you know what? I don't I don't even have lyrics for you right now i'm just gonna say blah 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 etc etc and i don't know this is the one where there's almost a, a moment of almost like she was sick of writing about it <laughs> yeah so i really enjoy it i i really enjoy this song it's it's one of my favorites on it it could still be peppy. You can be peppy and cynical, I think. But <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stand by my peppy statement. The cynical pep rally. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Go. All right. So that brings us to the end of side one of Songs of Songs in Red and Gray by Suzanne Vega on I Fucking Love This Record with my special guest, Derek Victor. Derek, we talked a little bit about uh, me at the beginning with how I'm handling the uh, lockdown situation. And why don't we talk a little bit about uh, how you're handling things right now? What's going on? I'm not doing bad with the lockdown because I actually work from home kind of nine to 10 months of the year anyway. Um, so that just feels normal. There's been more work than usual because I'm engaged in science communications. But what I've been 
kind of struggling with this year. It's not anything COVID-19 related. It's it's related to the political responses to everything that's going on at the moment. And I've particularly, as you, as you know, my wife Veronica is a trans woman and seeing the level of hateful, fearful rhetoric coming out of the United Kingdom against trans people and seeing that mirrored with the hateful, fearful rhetoric that's being directed against Black Lives Matter protesters and Black Trans Lives Matter marches and people who would like us to wear masks and and people who would like us to stay away from the pubs. I think that's what I've really been struggling with. I find myself tired and worn down after a day of work but part of my work is being on social media for some of my clients. And then I catch, you know, the latest thing that J.K. Rowling or Graham Linehan has decided to put out in the world and the impact that it's having and the responses to that or the latest inane thing that, Donald Trump and Mike Pence had and Mitch McConnell have said about wearing masks or freedom or whatever they're on about this week. And I, I just, that is exhausting. And I'm a cisgender, white, middle-class man. Yes, I'm queer and yes, I'm disabled, but, you know, I have all the fundamental privileges of my <laughs> of my gender and and race and i have passing privilege in my queerness and so a lot of this stuff i could just ignore it and say it's nothing to do with me but i i'm not i'm not ignoring it i'm engaging with it and yeah i think that's going to be my 2020 is very much okay how can I engage as an ally and support trans people in the UK and other countries who are under rhetorical and physical attack from people who hate and fear them? How can I engage with and support and be an ally to the Black Lives Matter movement? And just finding places that I can donate ways that I can uh, try to amplify somebody else's voice rather than giving my own take on it, but, you know, elevating the take of a trans person about the J.K. Rowling situation or that kind of thing, and, and engaging in all of that also without falling into being the straight white savior, <laughs> you know, engaging in a, in a supportive allyship role. And doing that from Ireland, because obviously I can't, from where I am in County Wexford, in the Blackstairs Mountains, I can't go off to, I can't even go to a protest in Dublin, let alone in the States or the UK. But I can sign things, I can donate, I can share what other people are doing, and, and that's what I'm trying to do. So it's it's strange, because I think for a lot of people, the year is dominated by COVID-19, for me, just became work and kind of day to day. And I don't mean to sound callous or cold, but that's how it felt. But 
the social, racial, gender identity issues that are going on, that's become the thing that I am engaging most with. Um, are these big topics in Poland? A bit. So I know there have been some uh, Black Lives Matter protests uh, here in, in Wrocław, and there was one in Krakow, I think in Warsaw. There have been some, obviously, some issues with uh, LGBT representation here. As I'm sure you know, there's you know cities that declare themselves LGBT free. Mm. Uh, but also there was a, a, a gay man running for president who did not win, but I think got a, a bigger percentage of the vote than people were expecting. And so I know my, my wife was happy to have voted for him. You know, it's Poland and it's a traditional white Catholic country and change happens, unfortunately, incrementally here. Mm. And I know there are people who are hoping to make, uh, to make that different and there are some who are hoping to keep it the same, but uh, yeah. So these are obviously all things that uh, uh, are are a part of the political landscape here, but probably not quite as big because the society here is so homogenous that it's sometimes hard to break through because it doesn't feel like it's an issue here, even though it is. Right. I think it's important to always remember that the difference between what the government and the politicians are saying and what the people are saying and what the country is portrayed as versus what the country is. As you say, the, you know, Poland is portrayed as white, homogenous and traditional. And that is largely what I think when I lived there, certainly a lot of politicians wanted it to be. They wanted it to be white, homogenous, Catholic and traditional, flying in the face very often of what it actually was in places, because there were places that um, were multi-ethnic. There were places that were not Catholic and where tradition wasn't the thing that was on the people's mind, but the politicians still wanted that to be portrayed. I'm from a country that is white, <laughs> you know, has always been portrayed itself as as white traditional catholic and 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 homogenous so i know something about that the only difference between poland and ireland is vodka and whiskey that's about it <laughs> not that we would ever engage in stereotypes <laughs> <laughs> so i've heard yeah but uh, I, stereotypically of course yeah, yeah yeah i think the one thing that i'm taking out of it all is that um for example, with the trans prejudice that is coming out of the United Kingdom, that rhetoric, that hateful and fearful rhetoric about trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming people is loud. But when you dig into it, it's not the majority that are speaking like that. It's a very, very loud vocal minority that are spreading this hate and fear through their own accounts, through sock puppets, through, you know, uh, having media connections and government connections and money to make themselves seem louder. But yeah, they're actually a minority. And when you put the message out in the world that we need support, there are thousands of people who are coming and saying, we, we want to support you. And I hope those people continue to engage and it's not just a moment where they're like, yeah, we got your back, and then they disappear. <laughs> I hope they stick around. When I encountered that kind of stuff, report block. <laughs> That's my advice to anyone listening. If you're working on social media, 
don't try to engage with transphobes, racists, and so on. Don't try to convince them. Don't try to talk to them because it doesn't work and it just makes things worse for the people they're attacking because it just amplifies their voices even more because now they have someone to engage with. Report their bullshit and block them. <laughs> you see a transphobe, report them and block them. You see a racist, report them and block them. Silence them, get them out of there so they can slowly be deplatformed. That's my 2020. <laughs> and it sounds just as challenging as, uh, as a lot of them for a lot of different reasons. So that's, uh, thank you for sharing that, though. And uh, as your wife said on the episode when, when she was here, uh, just uh, if, you, if you can be, be an ally and be a better ally and then try to do even better than that is more or less what her message was. And so we'll go ahead and repeat that there. So let's go ahead and flip the record over. Side two, track eight, Priscilla. Put on her skirt Layers of chiffon Top of the umbrella had come off So I put that on And we danced together then An awkward ballet She's 20 years older than I was What do you think about this one? If you're lucky, you've had a Priscilla in your life. If you're lucky, you've had this person who you could be yourself around, who was larger than life, who could dance like no one was watching, sing like no one was listening, be themselves no matter what was going on, and give you that moment of mentorship and safety to be yourself. Priscilla really stands out for me because it is once again about memory, but this is probably the happiest memory that I get from the, the song because it's going back way before the relationship, way before the divorce, and, and remembering this larger-than-life person around whom she could just be silly and shameless and, and have fun. When I started using the wheelchair and initially for the first four years, I couldn't stand. I, I'm a walking paraplegic, but initially I, I couldn't stand or move with crutches. I was solely using the wheelchair kind of if I was awake, I was using the wheelchair to get around. And I met this guy who had been using a wheelchair since he was 11 he was a few years older than me. Big, broad-shouldered, broad-chested, ursine-faced, larger-than-life guy. Everyone called him Scooter. Um, and he was like this mentor. And he had this fuck-the-begrudgers attitude that was just so infectious and so important and gave me so much and taught me so much, I'm hugely indebted to this person. And that's what I get from this song. If I was writing this song, it would be called Scooter. <laughs> and it would be about how, like, how he taught me to walk a wheelchair through snow and how when I fell on my ass because the 
wheelchair tipped over backwards and I landed on my back hard on the snow with my legs in the air like a turtle. His response to that was just to say, nah, niemajaboli, which means there's no such thing as it hurts. Get up, do it again. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. Yeah, people are staring. Fuck them. Get up, do it again. Niemajaboli. Um, and he was just amazing. And that's what I get from this song. So it's a really like uplifting, happy thing. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, so this was probably like her babysitter. So when she was a, a little kid, I was wondering how this really tied in to the overall narrative, even if it does, doesn't necessarily have to. One of the things I caught was, like I said, not every song has some kind of water imagery to it, but like in uh, Songs of Red and Gray, they have the the vase, which obviously generally has water in it. And the same thing here, there's talk of an umbrella, of taking the umbrella off to use as something. And I thought, you know, so this is something that repels water or keeps you safe from water. And like you said, this is the the happy memory for her. And if it was, you know, maybe just the, the lessons that she learned from from this is what led her into the relationship to begin with, to not be afraid and to go somewhere with it. And even though it didn't work out, it sounds like there's no real regret that she's unhappy and she's in pain or what have you in other parts of the song. But what got her there to begin with, she's okay with because of this mentor, this person who taught her how to dance like nobody's watching, as you said. So we're going to go ahead and move on to track nine, If I Were a Weapon. If I were a weapon, you said I'd be a gun. We fell at close range, I guess, with silencer and stun. I feel more like a needle, always pulling on the thread, always making the same point again, and wondering if you heard what I just said. And this is the song that reminds me most of the 99.9 Fahrenheit Degrees era and the way that she sings it, where normally she has a very smooth voice. And here she sings in more of like a kind of a choppy way. And so she has like a real different energy and approach in this one. I love how how straightforward, like she doesn't try to hide the metaphors. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you know, I, if I was a weapon, I'd be a gun. You know, what is it? Deadly at close range, maybe set to stun or something, silencer and stun. And, you know, you'd be a hammer, uh, you know, beating me down, <laughs> which I don't think is the exact line, but it's close. And, you know, she this just feels like I'm not going to hide behind any of this stuff. It's like, all right, the, I'm going to use the most obvious imagery possible and just the way she sings it and the, the lines in there, which come across as being a little tongue in cheek, but also maybe a little bit on the nose. I really like this one. This is, I think, a bit of an outlier in the uh, musical approach to it, even though it doesn't go on, you know, it doesn't have all like the, the electric guitars and some more of the more experimental uh, aspects of it. But this is the only song that really brings me back to that particular era. Mm. What do you think about this? I think, I mean, it's a fantastic breakup song. It's, it's, it's that cynicism that, like, I'm sick of not being heard. I'm done with pretending that we're not attacking each other. I like the um, what you said I would be versus what I am versus what I think you are and her weapons are so pointed and sharp and insightful 
whereas his is just a blunt and heavy <laughs> you know uh weapon i yeah it's a it's a really good breakup song and particularly that just at the end it gets to be so fatigued put down the hostage and we'll talk it down until we see this through let's stop attacking each other and just talk about it because it's over we're going to see this through it's over so let's stop hurting each other i think it's a great breakup song and again i I like that cynical energy from her i think a lot of people have the impression because you know they know tom's diner and they know luca that there's a just a sort of soft and mournful quality to her voice or and i think when you get into the albums and you see all the layers to it and you can see the peppiness and you can see the cynicism and you can see the the joy and you can see the sorrow this is a great example of her what she can do with these subtle changes in her voice to to totally transform the energy of the song and i really like it it it's one that i've quoted in situations that i won't mention because people involved might be listening (laughs) 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 yeah great stuff let's move on then to track 10 harbor song i came to you What do you think? I have to admit that this this one, it just kind of blends in. It gets a bit lost for me. There's something that it doesn't stand out for me. It feels a little bit like a B-side that ended up on the album. I don't hate it. I don't love it. It just kind of, it's there. There's something a bit early Decemberists about it. There's something a bit early Suzanne Vega about it. There's something a bit... Ani DeFranco B-side about it. I just, yeah. Nice imagery. It's got the little bit of water to it. I don't know. I don't have a lot to say about this one. I have zero notes for this song. I have zero (laughs) notes. I have nothing other than I didn't have to write it down because, again, it's Harbor Song, so it goes back to the water thing that I've been hammering on this whole whole time. And I remember there's the one line I like something about, you know, you, uh, you drink for 10 and smoke for 20. And something about that, I, I I like that just the just that particular imagery, and I'm having a hard time even coming up with a tune for the song. Like a lot mm-hmm. of times, you know, like I'll look through and like I can't quite remember, and I'll read a couple of lyrics, and it'll automatically, you know, the song will jump in my head. This is one that doesn't, and it takes me a while before I remember even what it sounds like. And I've listened to this record a million times, and every other song can automatically brings up something, but not, not Harbor this song. One. Yeah, so we're gonna go ahead and just. Check on over to track 11, Machine Ballerina. Am I an afternoon's pastime, a thing on a string to be thrown and retrieved like a phone call received on somebody's birthday to tease and delight and then say goodnight and then just say goodbye.
this is another one where the imagery is fairly obvious, but I really like the approach here where, you know, this is almost like the, um, you know, I'll never be your Maggie May. This one is more like, I'm not going to be your toy. You don't just get to, to wind me up and, and make me dance, you know? And I, I, and I like that because of the, and I don't even know if she necessarily uses those words, wind me up, but that has two different meanings, obviously, uh, where, you know, you would actually literally wind up a toy, but also if you wind somebody up, for the non-native speakers out there who may be listening to the show, means to try to push somebody into an argument or to try to annoy somebody enough that they lash back at you. And so I don't have a ton to say about this one, but I, I really like this song and I like the imagery in the song uh, and just all the different kinds of toys that she mentions. What do you think? You don't have a ton to say about it, but you managed to squeeze in a lesson there and, uh, for free, which, you know, that's a, that's a valuable thing, listeners. What can you, what can you say? Yeah, I, I think there's a, maybe by this point on the album, I'm kind of lagging a little because like with Harbor Song, this is one that I tend to forget. I like the imagery. There's a lot of good images in this song. But there's also something a bit obvious about it, maybe. It doesn't connect with me. I don't fit with it. I don't find myself having ever been in that situation. I don't find anything that resonates with me because it's like I've never thought of myself in those terms within the context of a relationship with anyone. So it just kind of passes me by because if, I, if it doesn't resonate, it doesn't stay with me. I get where she's coming from. I think, you know, it's a fine song. Musically, I I like the that it's like a bit more upbeat than Harbor Song. It at least lifts, like it gets some attention musically, but I have never connected with this one. And that's interesting. I was, I was wondering if you would get more out of it just because it's not gendered. And mm. even though we do take a, we do tend to think of men using women like toys a bit more often than we would think of uh, as the other way around or, you know, but I don't know necessarily in homosexual relationships, if, uh, you know, what's, uh, let's say the, the standard would be. Um, <laughs> There's no standard, believe me. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was what I just went again, looking over the lyrics and to realize that it doesn't come from a particular place like that. So there's no, you know, she, or there's no he. And I but that's actually been... interesting because there's also, am I a soft piece of clay? Am I your mad magazine? Am I a pinup pinball machine? Am I a soldier like... of tin? Like the toys are male and female associated toys. Skin trampoline, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Skin trampoline. That's um, very Doctor <laughs> Who. Um <laughs> Yeah, I I see what you mean with the the lack of gender that you could you could find yourself in. I guess I've just never found myself in that situation, so it doesn't resonate with me. I appreciate the artistry of it without connecting with it. Oh sure, yeah, I can I can understand that. I was trying to keep up with the lyrics and looking through that. I wondered if there would be if that's something that would come up because that's not something I would have thought about before we uh, we did our episode on the cure. So just uh, just trying to just trying to keep up <laughs> and doing a damn fine job, sir. Excellent. So let's move on to track twelve, solitaire. Come and sit down to try your luck and see if you unwind. Never use your threes and twos, follow superstition. 
Otherwise you're going to lose Compulsion makes you listen Take what's wrong and make it go right You can weave it like a prayer Wonder if you'll spend the night Playing solitaire I like how this There's a, a sound quality to this one That sounds like it's been recorded in a different space It sounds less polished, more hollow It definitely gets my attention right from the start. There's almost a scratchiness to it. So if you've been lulled a bit by not connecting with the previous two songs, it's like a a little subtle wake-up call. It's very late-night thoughts. It's, It's very... It's late and I'm trying to work out where I am and, and it's very chaotic. That, that idea of just like, oh, it's so late and I'm just, I'm playing one of these mindless games. I mean, obviously, you know, Solitaire was one of the first games on the computer. So I'm, I'm imagining that person just kind of clicking, you know, the cards again and again and as the night just wears on and they can't go to sleep and there's something very, very tired about this. And I think that supremely chaotic ending that's very nerves jangling from a late night coffee or nerves jangling because you're just overtired and overstimulated. I think the whole thing works very well in that regard. Yeah. It's quite a a strangely powerful song. I will admit that I sometimes get irritated by the ending of the song, the musical ending of the song. Like there are times when it's it's almost too much for me. And and I start to feel like, oh, I'll just skip to the next song. But I think that's the quality they were going for musically. I don't think it's supposed to be a song that you listen to and contentedly all the way through. No, I would I would imagine not. And this is another song that reminds me just a little bit of that 99.9 Fahrenheit degrees era, and that it's a little bit more noisy. And I like how it it changes the energy, like you said. And we see this with last year's Troubles, which is peppy, in case you didn't know Derek. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know that that song follows those two, you know, very dark, very kind of mysterious songs, and then it just it really just changes the energy and then the same thing with solitaire is like we have these two that are a bit slight and they don't quite have as as much of a, of a hook to them and then this comes in and sort of sweeps out that energy with something to to get you through to the end of the record because this is a little bit you know 13 tracks i think you know would this be a better album at 11 tracks you know maybe uh i think we may disagree about which tracks would go but i, I like that i like where this one comes in and i like where it, it how it comes into play and and how it changes things up it changes the air in the room and i like that the thought of late night thoughts and there was plenty of times ready you know just you don't even want to play solitaire anymore but you just keep hitting that card and you're playing and because you got something on your mind you're trying to work it out you got that itch in your brain so you can't fall asleep so it feels like you're doing something mm-hmm. uh, you know or or you're listening maybe you're just listening to music and you don't want to just listen to music you need to have something that occupies your hands while you can still listen to music and so it's something like that there's a lot of different ways but you know there's the dark night of the soul sometimes it's just because i just can't sleep and i need something to do and i'm not so i'm not just sitting there staring at the wall because i'm too tired or i'm too frustrated or i'm too sad or i'm too angry to actually 
do anything worthwhile. Uh, you know, I won't be able to concentrate on it. So how about I do this? Which brings us to the end of the album, track 13, St. Clair. Bow little bird, fly away home. Could I but ride her on the wind and the foam? All of the souls that curl by the fire, they never know. And this one goes back down, drops down the uh, the tempo a bit. And this is, it's like, a, it's a pretty song. It's a pretty song to take you out. And I think after what we've gone through on this record, you wouldn't want a big bombastic closer. You you wouldn't want to finish this album on solitaire or something a little bit louder or a little bit noisier. And so I think you need something that just sort of plays us out. And that's what I get from this one. Um, you know, this is one that I've never really connected with. I've never had a, I love it or I hate it. This is just sort of, I think I need this to finish this off. And that's what I think about St. Clair. What about you? Same like literally the same notes the same thoughts it's you know the way on on the cure disintegration that final song you kind of you need it after disintegration you need something to just like ease you out of the album back into reality it's kind of like that as you say if you if you ended on solitaire it would be your nerves would be kind of jangled, you'd be unsettled, you'd be dissatisfied with the ending of your album experience. And I think this gives you a moment to come back to normal, which if you look back through Penitent and Widow's Walk and I'll Never Be and Soap and Water and all those songs, a lot of them are about, okay, I've gone through this chaos, I've gone through this bad stuff, I've gone through this memory or this feeling, and now how do I pick myself back up? And there's a little bit of, this is how I'll pick you back up musically. Yeah, lyrically, musically, it's a very straightforward for me kind of exit. It echoes that need to find faith from Penitent, so it kind of wraps things up a bit, brings us back to the start. But beyond that, it's it's just the closer. That it is. So that uh, brings us to the end. What are your final thoughts about this record? I mean, obviously, I love it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. It's um, It's a very powerful album. It's a powerful breakup record, but it's also a powerful record about memory and about um, reframing memory and the role of memory in our continued lives. It's chaotic because it doesn't do you any favors in terms of telling you the story in a particular order. And you kind of have to have to take that chaos if you're going to listen to it as an album. A few really standout songs. And if someone's never listened to Suzanne Vega beyond luca and tom's diner i think it's a fantastic album to delve into really great yeah i like the songwriting on this uh, i really like her voice on this i like the instrumentation on this and even when some of those things maybe conspire to move towards something i i may not like it never quite goes there 
even though there's a, you know, a few songs you may be able to just sort of pass over and not think much about, I think a lot of these songs do cause you to think about things. And even if you're not thinking about exactly what she's thinking about, I think this is one of those records you can walk away from with something, even if your experiences are very different and that you can mold the songs into your experiences because she gives you a little bit of space to do that. She's not necessarily, you know, naming names except for Priscilla. This is the only one of her records I really come back to. There's a few others that I'll, I'll, I'll listen to a couple of songs on. And I think she's just a person I haven't done a deep enough dive. Like I've listened without sitting down to really listen. And that's one of those things that I may have to do pretty soon and see if there's something else in there that will also grab me because this just happened to be one of those records that came out during that fruitful period for me in between you know, 99 or 2000 and 2003, when you know, a, a lot of the records I've talked about on this show uh, either came out at that time or I was listening to a lot at that time. And this is one of those. And I still revisit it. I still like to come back and even if it's just cherry picking, like this is an album I can cherry pick. I can just go in and listen to Soap and Water and Songs in Red and Gray and, and get what I need from it. But it's not unusual to listen to this all the way through because this this is a good album to listen like when the kids are running around and I want to have music on and I want to listen to something that I like, but that isn't going to bother them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is a good one uh, for that. So I, I've spent many a, a Sunday morning listening to Suzanne Vega because the kids aren't going to freak out about it. <laughs> Until they're teenagers and then they're like, God, dad. <laughs> <laughs> I hear about daddy's music a little bit sometimes, but uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how that goes in the future. So that brings us to uh, just about the end of the show. I uh, would like to encourage my listeners, if you have made it this far, to you know, like or subscribe or write a review, whatever it is you're supposed to do to help more people find the show. I'd like for that to happen. Uh, and would also like to uh, echo Derek's sentiments about uh, being a good ally. If you are able to uh, donate some time or donate some money or help amplify other voices, especially in time, uh, as, uh, as Derek's wife had mentioned, right now you have people who are forced to live with family that may not accept them for who they are. And you also have people out there who are protesting to make sure that the the world we live in is maybe a bit of a better place. If you can help with that, I would also encourage you to do so. It's always great to sit down and talk about anything with you, Derek, but especially we have a lot of fun talking about music. And I will say quickly, because you and I differed very much on our talks about, uh, especially with The Cure, we took we, we came away for, with two very different views of that record, but I found we were pretty close on this one. Uh, we a lot of our views were pretty much the same, um, except when you were wrong about being peppy. Uh, other than that, it was, uh, so it was a lot of fun. It was fun exploring this and finding that we had a lot of the same feelings on it. So I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Uh, thanks and goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at lovethisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.